concerning the signs of the times. Matthew 16, and I want to read the first four verses, and we'll move right into this. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, all of you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. There shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, as we look into the scriptures, we pray that you speak to all of our hearts. Let this be illuminating and let us be edified by your word. Let us be strengthened by the truths of scripture. We thank you for leading and guiding us by the mighty power of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for how you appear and minister to us all in wonderful and in supernatural ways. Have your way in our hearts and lives in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. In the preceding chapter, the first couple of verses have the scribes and Pharisees coming to Jesus and they're asking why his disciples don't keep the traditions of the elders. If you've ever wondered what those traditions are, the Jewish people have a set of books called the Talmud. There's a Babylonian one and there's a Palestinian one. And the Babylonian one uh, has more than 40 or 50 volumes. The Palestinian one is a little smaller. But what these books are, are the records of the sayings of various rabbis from the preceding generations. And they kept track of these from 200 years before Christ right on up to 2 or 300 A.D., sometimes even longer. And these traditions teach them how they are to obey the law. So a rabbi would say something about one of the Ten Commandments or another statement, and then it would be passed down. And they called these statements a fence around the law. And they told people little things like how far a comb can go through a person's hair on the Sabbath day. They told a person how far they could walk and so on and so forth. Well, Jesus, of course, he wasn't anyone who was bound by all of those traditions. And he made it very plain to them that his doctrine wasn't his own, but came from his father above. That's what he said. And in talking with them, he made it very plain that you can make clean the outside of the cup, but the inside still be kind of dirty. Well, the second half of this chapter has several notable miracles. You have the woman who had a daughter grievously vexed of a devil. She was made whole there in verse 28. And then 29, 30, and 31 are three of my favorite verses in the Gospel of Matthew, because here you have multitudes of people that bring their afflicted, lay them at Jesus' feet, and every kind of, a, of illness and disease you can think of was made whole. So whether someone was blind, deaf, even people who were maimed, that's without body parts. It says there 
in verse 31 that the lame walked, the maimed were made whole. These miracles were done in the sight of all the people. And then the latter verses, you can see he had all these people there for 72 hours. For three days he preached and the crowds continued to grow. They never diminished. How would you like a three a three day message? I, I wonder how many of you'd still be here come Thursday night or Friday if I was still teaching. But but Jesus taught for three days. Nobody left. Miracles were taking place and the loaves of bread were multiplied. And then he got into a boat. And this is where we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 16. So here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've got two different fraternities here. The Pharisees were the keepers of the traditions of the rabbis. They were the ones who, according to their beliefs, to be a Pharisee, you had to have a son. That's what was believed in ancient times. But they certainly were the ones who were constantly reminding Jesus and others of the traditions. And they don't come off in a good light in hardly any of the Gospels at all because they were so religious. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they controlled the temple and they were appointed by the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees who controlled the synagogues and the Sadducees did not get along. The Pharisees believed the Bible was the word of God. They accepted the prophets of the Old Testament. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books. They denied that there was any kind of spirit and said there's no such thing as a resurrection. So on any other occasion, Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't get to get along and fellowship. But when you both have a common foe, even people who don't even agree doctrinally can get along. And this is what happened here in verse one. It says both of these groups came to Jesus. Now, you may have had that happen uh, in your life before where people who have never, ever really been good friends decide to get along just because they want to try to get after you. Create some problems in your life. And when they came to him, it says they were tempting him. Now, this Greek word for tempting is the same Greek word from Matthew four, where it says Jesus was led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So the whole point is to try to catch him in his words. They want to say something that will cause him to sin or cause him to lie or anything. And you remember how the devil came to Jesus He said to Jesus, now, look, you're supposed to be the son of God. Turn these rocks into some bread. And the Lord said to him that we're not supposed to live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Then the next time he came to Jesus, he said up here in this high place, if you just jump off this cliff here, you'll find that the word says the angels of God should hold on to you and keep you from hurting yourself. So go ahead, Jesus, jump. And the Lord said, you're not supposed to tempt The Lord, your God, we told the devil. And then up in the um, very high place where they could see a a lot of valleys and a lot of cities. And that devil produced some kind of a vision, showed them the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I give all of this to you if you just bow down and worship me. And the Lord said, absolutely not. You get behind me. So that kind of temptation is what we're dealing with here. 
The devil did it in the wilderness with Jesus, but now the devil and his demons are occupying these Pharisees and Sadducees and using them. You've heard me say before that the only way the devil can get into a church, he's got to come in a pair of pants, a dress, a suit, some overalls or something like that. And usually when when Satan is looking to create havoc in a home or in any church, he needs a vessel through whom he can manifest himself. He needs a mind that he can govern so he can have a mouth through which he can speak. You got to pay attention to that. You watch your kids to see if there's any quick changes or deviations in their behavior because the devil will try to get in there just as quick as he can. And don't think that he he can't manipulate people. Jesus was talking to Peter one time and he went on and told Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God. So even a Christian, if he or she's not careful, the devil can manipulate them into things that that aren't uh, aren't good. I've heard plenty of Christians say things like this. Oh, I would never do that. And then within a year and a half, they've done the thing they said they never would do. So these two groups come to Jesus. The temptation is placed in front of him and they have a question and and they're saying, Lord, show us a sign from heaven, a sign. Now, they, they know that in the Old Testament books, there were plenty of people whose ministries were confirmed by signs from heaven. So they, they, they know that's a powerful confirmation. They're saying, Jesus, we know you're doing miracles down here on planet Earth. We think it's great that you can change bread and multiply it. And it's wonderful that you can cast the devil out of somebody. But we're talking about the heavens now. You know, Genesis 1 verse 14 said the Lord put the stars in the sky for signs and seasons. So we want to see you do something up here in this atmospheric world that's going to confirm who you are. Because remember, Moses He had manna coming down from heaven six days a week for 40 years. And let's not forget Joshua. He was out there in the middle of a fight. And and Joshua said to the sun, stand still. And for 24 hours, there there wasn't anything. And let's not forget in uh, Judges chapter 5, when Deborah, the prophetess, had won the battle, she was singing the song and she told how the stars in their courses fought on behalf of Israel and defeated the enemy. So they're well aware of signs from heaven. Samuel talked to Israel and the Bible says the Lord thundered. And then, of course, let's not forget Elijah. When Elijah was dealing with the prophets of Baal, he said, we'll find out which God is really the strong God. And and the God that answers by fire, you'll know the truth. And the scripture says fire from heaven came down upon the altar. So they're saying to Jesus, we want to see a sign from heaven, if you're really God. Show, show us something. Well, <clears throat> we, we want to remember then that God doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. And that there are always people who will say to you, if you really are this or that, do this or that. I've had people who've said to me when they found out that I believe that that the Lord still will heal when when people pray, they'll say something like this. Well, if Jesus heals, then just go over there and pray for that person to heal him right now. See, something like that. Or when they find out that I I speak with other tongues, well, go ahead. Just talk in tongues right now. I want to hear you. 
And, of course, my response usually is, well, who are you that I need to prove anything to you? You hadn't died for anybody, and you're certainly not sitting on any throne, and you're not going to control whether I go to heaven or hell. Why, why do I have to prove anything to you? It's a temptation to see whether or not you are going to fall into the carnality that they're in the middle of. They said, show us a sign, man of God. Demonstrate to us that you are everything you say you are and that you're everything everybody else says of you. Be careful of that. Be very careful. Uh, You don't ever need to be ashamed of where you go in fellowship if you hold to what the book says. And if you hold to what the book says, you don't ever need to be ashamed of what the book says. Some people are ashamed of what's in the scripture. They don't like some of the stories in the Bible. But God had never called me to defend him at all or to defend the stories in scripture. He just told me to announce them and proclaim them. So look at Jesus answer then. He says, when when it's evening time. You say it's going to be good weather because the sky is red. Then come morning time. The sky is still red, but it's just a little bit dark, and you say it's bad weather. Now, in both instances, in the evening and the morning, the sky is still red, but you can't seem to make up your mind about what you're going to say about it. It's, it's, it's one of those, um, those old, you know, almost like farmer's almanac. You know, you got all these proverbs about what the weather's going to be like. You know, if the horizon is clear, there's nothing to fear. When the clouds are low and turn to gray, then the storm is on the way and all that kind of a thing. Uh, These folks are like amateur meteorologists. Just like you and me, the only thing they could do is try to determine what the weather was going to do by looking at the skies. I mean, you you know as well as I do, if if the, the, the sky has a greenish hue to it and it's a little chilly out there, you might get some hail. You know, and of course, if the temperature drops real quick and the clouds are low, you're probably going to see some tornadoes. And if you've got a lot of clouds and you see uh, lightning flashes and hear thunder, there's all likelihood you're going to have some rain. So we're, 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 we're used to observing those things. But I don't know about you, but I've driven in a whole lot of storms I probably shouldn't have been in. Even when all the signs said we shouldn't have been in them. I remember one time Tiffany and I were here, and, uh, and uh, they said a snowstorm was coming. And so Tiffany and I, she had went shopping and had a whole lot of stuff here in our place. And I had talked to Isla, and Isla said, oh, it's not going to be too bad. Not going to be too bad at all. Well, I mean, I don't know, 22, 30 inches might have came down. And, and somewhere in the middle of all that, I told Tiff, I said, well, I said, rather than us just staying here, I said, we got these services coming up. Why don't we head to Red Cloud and try to get through well, that was the dumbest thing anybody ever could, could try to do. So we get on the road, we're driving, and, you know, we get to Fairbury, it's all clear. I say all clear, it's snow everywhere. But, but once we got to Fairbury, I'm looking at that road, I said, this is not pretty. And, and then this snow truck turned, and the snow truck plowed a path from Deschler all the way to the road that turns going to Superior, and it was a path just big enough for one vehicle to go through, and we were the only vehicle on the road. There was a wall of snow this high on either side of us, and here we're driving through that snow, and I'm sure that snow plowman was probably thinking, what kind of a crazy man is this? 
out here following behind me. Well, when we got to the road that led to Superior or to Nelson, I got nervous because he turned around and came back. And we made the turn. And when we got to the road, 136, to turn toward Red Cloud, the snow had to be seven or eight feet high. You couldn't even turn down the highway to go there. We had to drive slowly into Superior. The parking lot at the hotel had about three feet of snow in it. We saw it. I sped as fast as I could, and the car just went up on top of the snow and rested and stopped moving. And we went and got a hotel room. And, of course, we, we look, look, looking back, we thought we could have stayed in the apartment. But because I was following the advice of one of those Belvedere ladies. <laughs> Here we are, you know. But, but here's the thing. All of us are able to kind of see what's going on with the weather just by paying attention to the sky. And what Jesus is saying to them, you folks can look at the countenance, the sky, and read it the same way you read the countenance of a human's face. And you know you can do that. Because with your kids, with your spouse, you can tell if they're happy or unhappy just by their facial expressions, even if they don't say anything. You know them so well. That is exactly how it is when it comes to this weather. And the Lord is saying, you folks are hypocrites because you can discern the sky, but have no no idea what's taking place spiritually at all. So what's a hypocrite? The ancient Greeks and Romans used to have all those stage plays where they put the masks on. But the Greeks in particular were the ones who really pioneered it because they put the masks on and then they're, they're out of character. All the people who were out there in the audience, unless you knew the body type, you didn't know who it was that were playing these different roles because they changed their voices. They have a lot of plays that came down from ancient history that are still available for, for people to read. But, but the hypocrite was the one who pretended to be somebody that they weren't. This is what the Lord's saying about them. You Pharisees and Sadducees, you pretend to know God. You pretend to be religious. You pretend to have a relationship with God, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You can try to tell people when you think the heavens are going to give forth rain on the land, but yet you can't read the handwriting of God that's written on the walls of prophecy all around you. Things are changing. Things are changing. Now, what were they blind to? Well, They were blind to this. They were blind to the fact that within a few short decades, Jerusalem was going to be overrun and destroyed by the Romans. They didn't see it. They were blind to the fact that Jesus was going to die on the cross, be raised from the dead and bruise Satan's head. They didn't see it. They were blind to the fact that the church was going to emerge and the power of God was going to be manifested. They couldn't even see that one day Peter would be able to heal people with the presence of his shadow. They were blind to those things. Signs of the times. But yet they could talk about all these other natural things. And people are like that today. I mean, are we paying attention to the season in which we're presently living? Can, can, can we can we see the handwriting on the wall right now with respect to the times that we're living in? Well, what did Paul say? Let's go to Timothy and let's look at a few things that Paul said. First Timothy, chapter four, verse number one. Knowing 
knowing these things, that the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What's a seducing spirit? A spirit that allures people and pulls them away from the truth. What's a doctrine of the devil? Any kind of a teaching that leads people away from the truth of who God is. That's 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. And you can't tell me there is not an increase in demonology and a a great awareness for uh, sorcery and black magic and all of that kind of stuff. People are intrigued by that because television portrays it and packages it in a positive way. So people don't think it's so bad, even when God's saying we should stay away from it. Do you realize that somewhere today... Right now, there's probably a person who's who's uh, hooked on uh, tobacco of whatever kind and and they're trying to get free of it. And somebody probably said to them, you know what you ought to do? You ought to go see a hypnotist. And they'll go see a hypnotist and that hypnotist will put some little swinging thing in front of them. And a the person's eyes will just look at that continually. And that hypnotist will tell them, now, look, you're, you're going to start getting sleepy and all of that. But what this is going to do is it's going to open up a portal in your mind. And I'm going to be able to engage that subconsciousness and give that subconscious some direction and be able to bring you out of this. You realize it's not God's plan for you to turn your mind over to anybody. The Bible says be sober minded, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Plenty of people have got themselves involved with hypnotism and the devil stepped right into their life to control. them. Other depression has come to them suddenly and quickly because they entered into that kind of thing. Think of the number of people that get involved with crystal ball gazing and, and all of that. Some people can't can, can move without that stuff. Not to mention people today who say, I, I don't want to call myself a, a Christian. I just want to say I'm spiritual, which is to say I'm opposed to any organized fellowship. I'm opposed to any belief that that uh, there's just one God. And I'm certainly opposed to the idea that the Bible is the only true God. I just believe in trying to contact whoever is out there in my own way. But spiritism It denies the inspiration of scripture, denies the power of the blood of Jesus, denies the the suffering of Jesus and his death on the cross. So anytime I come in contact with that and the person tells me that they're considered spiritual, I know I'm dealing with a sinner. And this person is is ensnared in spiritualism. Paul said here, doctrines of devils, seducing spirits. What are some of the lies that these seducing spirits produce? Verse three, they'll tell people you ought not marry. Yeah, ought not marry. Can, can you imagine the, the idea that somebody would tell a preacher you ought not ever marry or somebody would tell uh, believers you ought not marry? Here, here's another one. Most people would never think of this as one of them. You ought to stay away from certain meats. Think of that. Certain foods you can't have. Well, there are plenty uh, plenty of people on planet Earth today going out of their way trying to keep you from eating certain things. I don't, I don't know how many times I've had some nutritionist or some healthy Christian tell me I shouldn't eat bacon. And I tell them over and over again, I'm no longer under the law. They say, well, God said it's not healthy for us. I said, that's a lie. God told them what foods were clean and unclean. He never one time said the unclean foods are, are bad for you because they're not healthy. 
He just said they're unclean because I told you they're unclean. And some of the clean foods that he said you can eat, I still find the healthy people don't want to eat those. So he said ox is okay. Sheep are okay. Goat is okay. You don't find a whole lot of people promoting that. So I'm just going to eat my bacon since I'm not under the law. Yeah, not under the law. And here's what the scripture says. Which God created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. I have preferences just like you, but I have to be careful about how I try to impose them on other people. Yeah. Go to Second Timothy. Look at look at chapter chapter three. Listen to Paul. We're talking about discerning the signs of the times. We're living in the last days and people presently still don't recognize that so much of what we're seeing, Paul had prophesied 2,000 years ago. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Tell me we don't have that today. You, You hear people speak of politicians and call one another a narcissist. You know who narcissist was? He's in Roman legend. Narcissus was a very handsome individual who one day looked over into some water and was so captivated by his, the beauty of his reflection. He never left that body of water. He just wanted to stare at himself. That's somebody who's a lover of their own selves. What's a covetous person? A person who wants what belongs to somebody else. Never satisfied. A boaster. Glorying in themselves. What's a proud person? Somebody afflicted with pride, you know, just believing that that they're they're better than somebody else or the kind of pride that leads them to never want to apologize because they're never wrong. You know, pity, self-pity can be a form of pride because you always want to be a victim and you always want people to look, look at you as though you're in need of something and they should give you something. Paul said in the last days there'd be blasphemers. That's a parent. What about kids disobedient to parents? Go to some games in, in, a, in a big city. Watch how young people talk around elderly people. Look at how they talk to some of their parents. Go visit some teenager who's talking back to their parent. I mean, the kind of things I've heard kids say today uh, in the face of their moms and dads. i had been getting up off the floor and I've been crying and, and all of these kinds of things. But Paul said there's a spirit in the last days that's going to produce this kind of disobedience. It's there. Unthankful. It's a generation of. People who have no gratitude. I deserve the money that I'm getting from from you and from the government, and from the church. And then you say thank you. Unholy. That's obvious. Without natural affection. We know what natural affection is. The love of a guy and a gal. <coughs> Man and a woman. But you can hardly watch a program today. Without the unnatural affections and manifestation. They'll throw it right in the middle of something that that really intrigues you. Because they know they can't create a program all based upon uh, homosexuality and lesbianism and expect the ratings to be good. So they just got to add for every 15 characters they got in the movie, they got to add one or two just to make sure they can hold on to having that presence there. 
And if we can sow that seed in the hearts of young people and they see it over and over again, they'll grow up believing that the unnatural is the natural. That's where we are. Yeah, it's happening. Truce breakers, people that can't keep their word. Paul said, this is, this is what you'll see in the last days where you used to be able to make a business deal or conduct any kind of business with a handshake or with a word from somebody. If somebody told you they were going to honor something, they would honor it. But not today. You have church people in court against one another because somebody broke their word in a business deal or something like that. False accusers. These are people that slander, incontinent. People have no restraint. Fierce individuals in the last days. Did, did you, even if you're 40 and below, who would have ever thought you'd see people smashing windows and going into businesses and taking thousands of dollars worth of merchandise and not even being prosecuted? And the store owners and the merchants don't dare stand up to them lest they get beaten because if they attack the ones taking their goods and they harm the ones who were involved with thievery, then the merchant will be sued and probably end up in jail. Or have to pay a fine. The Bible talks about fierce folks in these last days, just like they were in the days of, of Noah. The Bible describes these folks as people with violence in their hands, despisers of those that are good. Is that today? Yeah. Opposed to Christianity, opposed to the church, opposed to what is right, angry about it. Christians are called terrorists by some people. In other negative terms, traitors, people with no loyalty, heady, high-minded, arrogant, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That goes right back to the first sentence of verse one. More interested in gratifying their own personal appetites rather than submitting to the will of God and pleasing him. Jesus said, I do those things that please my father. And amazingly, in verse five, he says, all the people that are doing these things have a form of godliness. Just like the Pharisees and Sadducees in the last days, a form of godliness. It looks spiritual. It looks holy, but it doesn't have enough power to change anybody's life. And, and this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16 when he says, you folks can't even discern the signs of the times. Can't you see how generations are changing? Now, Peter told us later that in the last days there would be scoffers, people that mock believers and the idea of the coming of the Lord. Where is the promise of his coming? We've been hearing about it forever since I was a kid. Folks say Jesus is going to come. I'm tired of hearing about he's coming. He hadn't gotten here. That kind of attitude, that kind of belief. But the signs of the times are important because we need to know where we are in Bible prophecy. We need to know where we are in God's calendar and we need to understand what he's doing, what he has done. Now, I think for us then <clears throat> in understanding these signs, we, we definitely can't forget Israel. Go to Ezekiel 36. Let's remind ourselves that Ezekiel lived some 500 or so years before Jesus was born. And he is now a captive in Babylon. And he is prophesying about a people who have been taken captive and brought to Babylon and to a few other nations. 
But yet while he's a captive, he begins to prophesy about how Israel and Jerusalem in particular is going to be restored. And he speaks of a time in which the Lord is going to bring the Jewish people from all of these different nations. Notice in Ezekiel 36, verse number three. Therefore prophesy and say thus, saith the Lord God, because they've made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side. That you might be a possession unto the residue of the heathen. You are taken up on the lips of the talkers and you're the infamy of the people. Therefore, ye mountain of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of God to the mountains, the hills and the rivers and the valleys, to the desolate places, to the cities that are forsaken. He goes on to prophesy that these things are going to be rebuilt, inhabited again and flourish Now, you may read some of these statements, especially starting with verse 16 through 21, and wonder how then can these things be future when Ezekiel is talking about them as though they're in the past? Because he says in verse 19, I scattered them among the heathen and uh, and they were dispersed. Well, here's what we know. These folks are going to be brought from multitudes of nations. And as of this time, it had not occurred yet. They had only all gone to Babylon. Ezekiel's given a vision of things to come. It's very much like Isaiah 53. Listen to the language in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He's 800 years before Jesus, and this is what Isaiah said. He is despised and rejected of men, past tense. It's almost like he's describing somebody who already was here. A man of sorrows acquainted, past tense, with grief. We hid, past tense, as it were our faces from him. He was despised, past tense again is used, and we esteemed him not, past tense in the language. But yet these are the verses and this is the chapter that Matthew uses and Paul and Peter uses to draw on to describe our Savior. So Ezekiel then, 2,500 years ago or better, he is talking about the nation of Israel that has been scattered throughout all these different nations around the world. And from Ezekiel's time forward, Israel never had been a sovereign nation again until last century. Because after the Babylonians, the Greeks had control. After the Greeks, the Romans had control. With the Romans, the Eastern Roman Empire. And then from there, the Muslims gained control of Israel. And then let's not forget the Ottoman Empire had control right on up until World War I. Well, if we consider that in the late 1800s, God started bringing Israelites back to the land, you've got to know God had to put it in their hearts for them to want to go. Little by little, they started wanting to make that trip going back to the promised land. How did they end up with the promised land anyway? Well, there was a, a chemist named Chaim Weitzman who <clears throat> was a pretty, pretty smart individual, but during World War I, the Brits had run out of a certain raw material that they needed for the war. 
They went to this Jewish man, asked him if he could produce this material. He did. He was able to. Well, once the war was over, because the, the Turks were terrified of the airplanes, they had never seen any airplanes coming over Israel and different places where the war was being fought. They just threw their weapons down, took off running. They, they were terrified of that. They said to this man, Chaim Weitzman, you helped us win this war. What is it we can do for you because of your contribution to our nation? And he said, if you could... Give Palestine to the Jews again for a homeland. We'll be happy. Well, that's what led to the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And that is what put that little sliver of land along the Mediterranean on the map again for Israel. And as Israel started coming home, they came back to what? They came back to deserts. They came back to swamps that were filled with malaria and sickness. They came back to a territory that didn't hardly even have a tree in it. The Arabs had, Arabs had cut them down because the Ottoman Empire had basically said, for every tree that's here, we're going to have to pay a special tax on it. So they were cutting the trees down and using them as far, firewood. And here comes the Jewish people. And once their feet got back on that land, the prophecies of Ezekiel began to come back into fulfillment. This is why when you read Ezekiel 36, you can look at verses 8 and 9 and see what the Lord was doing. He says, O ye mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and ye shall be tilled and sown. That's what he says. And as they came back to the land, the Lord began to bless them. In fact, this miracle, of course, was so powerful with the Lord bringing Jewish people from northern parts of Russia, with him bringing Jewish people from as far south in the Arabian continent as Yemen, and from South Africa, and from South America, that when they all started coming home, here's what Jeremiah had said in chapter 16, verse 14. And 15, he said, therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither he had driven them. And I will bring them again into the land that I gave unto their fathers until the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the Jewish people were taken captive into the nations. They had never gone into all the different nations before. They had just been taken captive into one, two, or three nations. And so when they finally got back into their own country, one of the first things they did was started putting together their stamps that people were going to put on their envelopes. And even their stamps told the story of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture. Because one of the first stamps that they had built was a stamp or, or had produced was a stamp that had the Israel Israeli ground or territory at the bottom and then had airplanes flying through the air on the stamps because they believed Isaiah 31 verse number five. Let me read it for you. It says, as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also he will deliver it just like when the Turks took off running because they'd never seen these contraptions moving around. God defended them. 
they had another stamp. And on that stamp, it, it had all of the immigration tools and people standing there holding scythes and sickles as they were out there working to till the land. But in Ezekiel 36, the Bible makes it very plain in verse 24. I will take you from among the heathen and bring you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. And I already read you the verse where they're going to till the land. So several stamps revealed the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah. And we're living in a time frame right now where so many people can't even discern the times. If you think in the Old Testament, it was powerful for them to talk about Israel being delivered out of Egypt with miracle signs and wonders. Look at what God has done with a nation that it ceased to exist essentially for 2000 years who had lost their language. And revived the language, revived the land and made them a sovereign nation again back in May of 1948. So this is why Jeremiah was able to say one day when they all come back home, that miracle is going to be so great that people aren't going to be talking about the deliverance from Egypt anymore. They'll be talking about the deliverance from all the nations. That's how powerful it is. But do you realize there are a whole lot of Christians today not even interested in that? They don't care about Israel. They're not looking at Israel as a time piece or a chess piece in God's game plan. They don't see any relevance to Israel at all. And anybody who can think like that, I just think they have misunderstood the scriptures. Because Romans says blindness has come to Israel in part. But one day, according to Romans, all of Israel will be saved. Our role now as the church It's to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them because it says in Romans, they are to be jealous or envious of the riches and blessings we have in Christ. That's what they're supposed to see. Yeah. Well, going back over now to Matthew 16, you can see why it's important. And and he called them hypocrites. They couldn't discern the signs of the time. So in verse four, he told them they're a wicked and adulterous generation. What is adultery? The breaking of the covenant in a relationship with someone, entering into illicit relationship with people that we shouldn't be with. And that's wicked. And he said, this is how this generation is. They are seeking after a sign. They're not seeking after me. They're seeking after a sign from heaven. I won't take you there, but these same verses you'll find again in Matthew 12, verse 38. The scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus there. And the Lord told him, the only sign you're going to see is the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was in the belly of that great well for three days and three nights. And the son of man is going to be in the heart of the earth. So the story then of Jonah becomes very important for us in this particular account because it, it represents this generation. So who, who was Jonah? Well, Jonah was a man that heard from God and the Lord said, I want you to go to Nineveh, this big, huge metropolis filled with sin. I've heard the cries of all of their iniquity. You go there and preach. Well, Jonah, he was like a whole lot of people. He didn't want to go. And so Jonah went down to the port area and he bought a ticket and he said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving here. I'm going away from God. I'm going to Spain. So he gets on a boat. 
and he's sailing to Spain with all of these other mariners. And of course, he, he doesn't know when he leaves port and that ship's heading on uh, westward. He, he doesn't know God's got a great big fish trail in that boat. You know, he, he, he doesn't have any idea at all because most of us are totally oblivious to what God is doing behind the scenes when we're out of the will of God. And, and they get out there and Jonah thought, man, it's, it's a whole lot easier than I thought trying to run from God. It's a beautiful day out here, laying out here on deck, good, good suntan, it's wonderful. And, and here come the storms, see, here come the storms. And then a strong wind, waters get choppy, it's beating on the ship, everybody's nervous. And they say, well, look, we got to do something about this. So the captain comes down and he really thinks this thing's going to fall apart quickly. And he says, everybody get up and start calling on that God. I don't care what God you call on, just call on some God. And so they did. They start crying on, crying out to gods. And uh, Jonah didn't say anything. He was just there. And finally they said to him, why in the world are you uh, ignoring my plea? Because we're all about to, about to die. Well, he, 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 he didn't care. And so <clears throat> they, they started rowing. And they're all doing everything they can, tossing water out of the boat. And they're pulling on their oars and they're trying to move that. But the adverse winds are too much, which usually is the problem when we're trying to go against the will of God. You can't push God out of the way when God's trying to push you back. You see, and we try. We always try a whole lot of self-exertion. And, and, and we're we're doing that. and We get frustrated. And finally, they said, we, we got to figure out what the problem is, because we've been calling on God. He he had answered and, and we need to. Figure this out. So they cast lots, the lottery system. I don't know if they put numbers on a rock or several rocks and put it in there in a bag or something. But the lots failed and indicated Jonah was the problem. So they went to Jonah and said, Jonah, what is who, who are you? And Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew man. I fear God and I'm running from him. And he wanted me to go to Nineveh and I won't go. And they said, Really? They said, well, we've we got to figure out how to stop this storm. And, and he said, well, if you throw me in the water, then everything will calm down. So, of course, you know, some big burly guys grabbed him. And, I mean, they tossed him out there in the water. And that's when he ended up in that, in that, uh, that fish's belly. Now, chapter 2 of Jonah is interesting because he tells the story of how he was in the belly of that fish. And he could tell the fish was taking him down in, through the depths of the water. You know, you know, you can you can tell when your body's going down this way. He 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 knew that that'd be a terrible place to be, terrible place to be, and, and to be alive in the middle of all of that. You see, darkness. But chapter two says he prayed. Said out of the belly of hell, I prayed to God. My prayer came into His holy temple. He said weeds were wrapped all around my head. He prayed. Isn't that a good place to pray in? Yeah, if you if you ever in a very confined place like that and you're running from God and you, you just feel like you're trapped, that's a good time to talk to the king. So Jonah prayed, God heard, and God made Jonah something sour in that fish's belly. And the scripture says that fish all of a sudden vomited out this man. After that little trip, however many miles they went, vomited out that man. And Jonah get, comes out of that fish, of course. And then here's what the Bible said. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Don't you thank God for them second time? 
And, and when, the, when the word came that second time, Jonah said, Nineveh has never looked better. Never looked better. That man came out of that fish's belly like a resurrected person. That old Jonah was left in the belly of that fish. But he comes out totally different. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Fish, guts, and smelly, and all of that. And here, he's got to make that three days journey. And sure enough, one of the days journey is just going into the city. He goes in. I I bet those people are looking at him like, what kind of crazy man is this? Look at him. And he starts preaching. And as he preaches, the people listen and believe And the Bible says they repented and their repentance was so true. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They fasted and they didn't even let their livestock have any food. They wouldn't wouldn't put them out to pasture. And the Bible says they wouldn't even give them any water for the time that they were fasting. And the king humbled himself and the whole city was changed. And here's what Jesus is saying to them. Because he had told him in Matthew 12 previously in that story, a greater than Jonah is here. So here he is now telling them, you're not going to get any sign but the sign of the prophet Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here talking to you right now. And all of you folks are just as wicked as the folks in Nineveh were. But the folks in Nineveh repented of their sins. He says, you're not getting another sign. I am Jonah. You're looking for a sign from heaven. I am the sign from heaven. I'm the one that descended from heaven and came down here, put on this earthly flesh in in order to preach to you. I'm the one that the scripture says you're going to see angels ascending and descending upon me. I am that manna that come from above that's down here. You're looking for a sign. I am the sign. And how many people today are like that, missing what God is saying to them, unable to discern the signs of the times? God uses the church to be the body of Christ in the earth. And people are still running around the earth looking for this and looking for that. But all they need to find is the true church of Jesus. Find a true believer. And you find one of those. And then miracles take place and lives are changed. I, I hope in these last days our eyes and our affection will be set on things above. To know that as he uses us and leads and guides us, he'll direct us into a greater personal relationship with him. I'd much rather know God than know about God. You know, you can know all there is to know about food and starve to death if you don't know how to pick up a knife and fork or use your hands and feed yourself. But to know God, that is the key. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that your word is so clear. And when we think about the times in which we're living, we need to have our eyes open to discern the signs of the times. And we're so grateful that you have done one miracle after another in our generation. But God, if you could revive a nation from death and you could bring people back home and recreate it all over again, there's nothing you can't do for us in the form of restoration in our own lives. You can restore homes. You can restore wounded spirits. You can restore and revive churches, God. So we pray and ask you to lead and guide us in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen.